Hello, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Our guest today is Quan Berry for a conversation on her novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East, published in 2022 by Vintage. We'll also be getting a preview of her forthcoming poetry collection, Auction, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press and on sale everywhere September 26th. Born in Saigon and raised on Boston's North Shore, Quan Berry is the Lorraine Hansberry Professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Barry is now the author of nine books of fiction, poetry, and drama, and is currently Forward Theater's first-ever writer-in-residence. Her play, The Mytilenean Debate, had its world premiere in spring of 2022. Barry is a member of the Dramatists Guild, and samples of her play plays can be found at newplayexchange.org. In addition to several awards, including a 2021 Alex Award from the American Library Association, Barry is one of a select group of writers who has received NEA fellowships in both poetry and fiction. To set the, day, uh, to set the stage for today's conversation, let me give you a brief over- overview of When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. Narrated almost entirely in the present tense, the book is a series of Tibetan Buddhist meditations that take the form of a novel. Our narrator, Chulun, is a Tibetan Buddhist monk born in the early 1990s in Mongolia. He and his twin brother, Moon, are born with a call or thin membrane covering their faces. Because of this, they are able to read each other's thoughts and communicate telepathically. At a young age, Mun is recognized by monks from a nearby monastery as the redeemer who sounds the conch in the darkness. Both brothers enter monastic life together, Chulun the servant of his chosen brother. However, when the novel begins, Moon has renounced his calling and, and lives in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia's capital city, where he works as a guide for tourists. Tattooed, ponytailed hair, a smoker, Mun strikes a sharp, strikes a sharp contrast to his devout Buddhist brother. At the novel's outset, Chulun has just been tasked with finding the reincarnation of a great lama, the one for whom the sky never darkens. He enlists the help of his brother, who, along with two other monks, scour Mongolia's vast and expansive landscape. During their quest, they encounter three possible candidates, all children, all wise beyond their years, all possible reincarnations of a lama. There's sheep stealing, a car accident, and a terrifying sandstorm in the Gobi. There's religious enunciation and epiphany. Death, birth, sacrifice, time passing, time standing still. There is the certainty of impermanence, suffering, and love's capacity to endure beyond space and time. Why do we need to believe our lives must add up to some grand narrative, Chulun muses at one point, and what happens when we stop believing this? Here in the studio with me today to discuss this enduring question is Quan Berry. Quan, welcome back to Madison BookBeat. Fabulous. Thank you for having me. So When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East is a novel deeply embedded in the geographies, histories, and cultures of Mongolia. Can you talk to us about your own experience visiting and researching Mongolia and how it functioned as the setting for your novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. So I was in Mongolia in 2008, and I should back up a little bit to say that as a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of uh, resources at my fingertips that allow me to travel to a lot of different places. And so it's true for, I would say, about the first 15 uh, so years of my career at the, U- at the UW, I would oftentimes spend my summers traveling to less visited places around the globe. Uh, so for example, in 2004, I was in Antarctica. You know, I've been in Africa, I've been in other places, and then in 2008, I actually went to Mongolia. Usually when I travel somewhere, I don't have an idea for how it's going to appear in my work. I'm just simply there. I'm not there as a tourist necessarily, but I'm just there to absorb as much as I can about the people and the landscape and all those sorts of things. Um, I rarely take notes of any kind. I do take photos, but I'm somebody who, when I take notes, it actually takes me out of an experience. So it's better for me to actually live something and to, to fully be present rather than take notes. 
sense. And I'm fortunate in the sense that for whatever reason, my brain is currently configured in such a way that I tend to remember things that I deem important to remember. And so again, I was in Mongolia in 2008. I was there for a month. I went specifically because I was interested to see one of the summer festivals that happens called Nadam, which happens in July and which is practiced all over Mongolia in the main capital and also in smaller outposts around the country. Um, while I was there, I was fortunate to be able to travel around by car, um, having a driver take me to see various sites, including the Gobi, um, other sites in the steppe and things like that. So that all happened in 2008. And then I would say, I think it was roughly 2013 that I heard a story that the Dalai Lama at the time was saying that because he fears the politicization of his death after he passes, that specifically the Chinese government will name a new Dalai Lama as a puppet that he himself was thinking about taking the unprecedented step of reincarnating while still alive. And when I heard that, it's true, Mike, my brain just kind of exploded and I went down a rabbit hole about reincarnations and just finding out as much as I could about them. And then when I began to realize that, hmm, potentially there actually might be a novel here about reincarnations and about finding them, I thought about where I might set a narrative like that. I myself have never been to Tibet, but then I began to think about Mongolia. And it's true that Mongolia and Tibet have a long history together. Um, both countries practice Buddhism. The actual uh, word Dalai Lama is a compound word um, of a Mongolian word and a Tibetan word. And so there's a lot of movement historically and religiously between the two countries. And so I decided to set this story of folks looking for a reincarnation in Mongolia. The the summer festival that you were interested in, in seeing um, was was the festival, is it primarily based on on Buddhist belief systems was, or was it indigenous belief systems? Was, was it a mixture of the two? It's not Buddhist in, in practice and it goes, it goes back a long way. And so it actually um, it encompasses what are called the three manly arts. And so the three competitions that happen during Nadam are horseback riding, um, archery and also wrestling. And so I'm sure that there's probably some um, shamanic tradition that's embedded in it. So for example, before the wrestling happens, you know, there are various dances and things like that that are performed before the wrestlers actually engage with, with each other. Um, but again, so what happens is like every town has its local Nadam festival and, um, and you can go and see them. And I should say that although they are considered to be the quote unquote three manly arts, um, you also do see women participating. For example, girls participate oftentimes in the horseback riding competitions. And and women do also participate in the archery competitions. You've spoken before about the the, the long the long thousand year history of of, of Mongolia, uh, Chinggis Khan, or the 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 life and legacy. The ghost of Chinggis Khan is definitely in is uh, throughout. When I'm gone, look for me in the east. Um, also, throughout you talk uh, through through your narrator, uh, your readers learn about. Um, Soviet influence on Mongolia, uh, the Chinese influence after the fall of the Soviet Union. So the novel definitely does not shy away from from the geopo geopolitical history of Mongolia. For those unfamiliar with this history, what do you think is worth knowing about Mongolia? Um, and how does Buddhism specifically fit fit into this? Mm -hmm. So as a novelist, I'm very interested in how landscape forms our stories. And so in every novel that I've ever written, I've always worked very hard to uh, not just set a story in a place, but to also have my readers come away with a fuller understanding of the history of that place. I think particularly, obviously, I'm not Mongolian, I'm not Buddhist. And so it was very important to me then to work in the history of both the country and also the religion. Um, so that readers, primarily Western readers, would, would learn about the landscape and about the history that has formed um, the people there. And so in thinking about it, um, you know, many of us, when we think of Genghis Khan, we think of like a bloodthirsty tyrant who killed many people, et cetera, et cetera. But it's true that Time Magazine, for example, named him their man of the millennium in the year 2000, right? And so it's one of those situations where um, the victor, the ultimate victors, got to write the story. And so even though Genghis Khan in his time was very successful, it's true that the many peoples that he ended up conquering ultimately wrote the story of him as being, again, this bloodthirsty tyrant. But really, he was a man of ideas. You know, he invented one of the first postal systems, the idea of diplomatic uh, diplomacy. Um, 
um, just all these kinds of things. So it's really interesting to me. And I wanted people to be aware of that and not just to think of him again in the ways in which we thought of him in the past. It was also important for me to, uh, to have people realize that Mongolia, again, in, in the 12th centuries, was the center of the world. You know, when we talk about the Silk Road and things like that, we're often talking about people, you know, Marco Polo, et cetera, you know, traveling to um, the capitals that were built by Genghis Khan and his descendants. So I wanted readers to come away with knowledge of that. Um, it's also interesting, and I'm just personally fascinated by the fact that if you go today to Karakoram, which had been the site of uh, a capital that he'd established, you know, there's basically nothing left. There's just one stone turtle. There are no buildings and things like that. He was not a leader who built, for example, like pyramids or tombs to himself. Um, archaeologists are still not quite sure exactly where he's buried. It's known that he's buried on the specific mountain, but again, the whereabouts of his burial are, are unknown. And I just find all that kind of fascinating. And to me, it sort of... Um, shows the reader what this particular culture values. Um, as to your questions about the 20th century history of Mongolia, it's important to note that Mongolia um, basically became, fell under the Russian influence in the early 20th century, and that uh, Russia installed a puppet uh, leader there who went about um, basically uh, decimating Buddhism in many ways. So Buddhism was suppressed for much of the 20th century. You know, there were purges, monks were killed, monasteries were destroyed. And so it's important to me that the reader understands this so that they understand why now in the book, Buddhism is having this resurgence. Um, and so again, these two brothers are actually born sort of uh, during the year of uh, Mongolia's independence um, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And so again, um, in many sorts of ways, they're sort of the future of this country as well. And so again, one needs to have the history of what happened there in order to understand these things. In in contemporary Mongolia, in the time that you spent there, did you get the sense that the these histories of, of, of these of these killings of these purgings is that something that is still is that something that is still held up in public memory? Is that something that they are still recalling? I didn't necessarily, but it's not just that it might not be happening. I didn't necessarily um, see memorials and things like that specifically to um, regarding like, the temples that were destroyed or the monasteries that were destroyed or the monks that were killed. Interestingly, though, um, again, as Buddhism is having this resurgence there. So, for example, there was a contemporary um, Buddhist uh, Lama who was found to be a reincarnation who had been living in exile um, in secrecy for many, many years. And he actually ended up going back to Mongolia in the 1990s. And so these things continue, the idea that people were living outside the country um, up until about 30 years ago. Hmm. Yeah. Today we are in conversation with Quan Berry on Madison Bookbee, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas. Uh, we're talking with Quan about her 2022 novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. Part of the layout of the novel is um, most of the chapters are, are quite short. Um, most uh, are about anywhere from a page to three pages, so they often read as these, as these short vignettes. There is a linear narrative, but there's frequent times where uh, the reader is kind of left with uh, a meditation or or when a chapter ends, it very much feels like that there's kind of a pause, uh, however brief. In another conversation, you've talked about your interest in ways of communicating beyond language. And so I'm thinking of these short chapters as almost these kind of short little meditations that are then accompanied with silence. And so it's interesting hearing a writer say that they're interested in ways of communicating beyond language because language is, 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 your, primary, is your primary medium. So could you just talk a little bit more about what it's like as a writer to be thinking of how to communicate beyond language and how you see that taking form in, in, in this particular work? Mm -hmm. It's a great. It's an interesting question and something that I'm really fascinated with. So um, the philosopher William James, you know, ha very famously had a list of um, things that have to have happened in order for one to claim to have had a religious experience. And so I don't remember again what the, what his entire list included, but one of the things on the list was in the idea of the ineffable, the idea that it can't be explained. And I've always been fascinated with this idea of just that which cannot be said. And I think in some ways that's probably why I started my career as a poet. So poetry is much more concerned in certain ways than other art forms with the idea of the inexplicable. And so it's been something I think in my fiction that I've been trying to emulate um, since I started writing fiction. So it's true that my first book, She Weeps Each Time You're Born, I was very interested in that book in ways 
that I might use uh, more poetic tools, uh, the image, sound, and things like that to carry a narrative rather than relying on narrative detail. Um, and so that um, interest in the ineffable carries over into this work as well. And so because this is a book that has to do with, you know, the idea of a spiritual journey and the idea of um, religion and just thinking about, you know, exist, it has a lot of existential questions in it that it poses, et cetera, et cetera. It was, I, it just seemed natural to me that, the, that this idea that obviously the book would not be able to answer these questions. You know, they're questions that in some ways the, the thinking of the question is the, is the goal itself. It's not necessarily the answer that one comes to. And, um, and so it made sense to me that there would be different ways in this text that I would try and emulate that idea of what cannot be said. So again, as you mentioned, you know, the very short chapters in some ways, the idea that the book, you know, ultimately isn't interested in... Um, having like a pat close a pat closing at the end mm -hmm. you know things are sort of left not to give a spoiler alert or anything like that but you know in many ways it is really about the journey itself and not necessarily what is discovered not to give too much away about the end but there is the 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 people on the journey put it this way they find what they're looking for in some form or another um, and it's not this big revelatory moment. It actually reminded me of that. I think there's a really famous passage in To the Lighthouse mm -hmm. by Virginia Woolf where a character, the primary character dies in a set of, in, in a parenthetical aside. It's mm -hmm. the beginning of a, of, a, of a chapter and then in parentheses, it's like, oh, by the way, mm -hmm. this, this character mm -hmm. has, has, has died. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the structure of this novel felt very much that way, that it, it was while we're getting this larger narrative, it's still thinking about the larger, um, as you say, kind of existential questions that, 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 that are coming up. Um, in your own, in your own experience in, in writing about, about Buddhism, is this, is this a faith practice that you identify with? Um, or, or to what extent? Cause er, earlier you said that you don't identify as, as, as a Buddhist, but what was it like researching this, th this faith and to the extent of being able to write, write a, a novel very deeply inflected by it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I myself, you know, I was raised Unitarian, and I still feel very Unitarian deep down in my bones, even though I don't go on Sundays uh, to service so much. But um, about 10 years ago, a friend of mine asked if I was interested in taking a class that was offered here in Madison, um, in which one could learn how to meditate. And so we did. We took this, I think it was like an eight-week class with this amazing woman over in Middleton named Jan Shepard. And then I went on to take a one-year intensive Buddhism class with her. And the particular tradition that she studies is the Thai forest tradition. So it's a Theravan tradition out of Thailand. Um, but I learned a lot, again, about um, just the practice of um, mindfulness, of of being with what is and just all kinds of things. And it did sort of send me down a very pleasant rabbit hole of reading because there's just, there's so many different traditions when it comes to Buddhism. And Madison is really a hub for many of them. You know, obviously a lot of people may know, for example, that the Dalai Lama has spent quite a bit of time here um, in Madison, again, thanks to the professor, uh, Richie Davidson, who's been doing a lot of work to do, you know, to put monks in MRIs and to see what's happening in their brains as they're meditating and things like that. So I feel very fortunate to live in a community and which I can get exposed to all different kinds of Buddhist practices and things like that. And so when it came to writing this book, you know, I did, it, it, because I, like as, I, as I said, I'm not somebody who takes notes. And so I have to admit that research is not something I enjoy doing that much. Um, but here it was really tricky because there are so many traditions that I wanted to be very conscious that I wasn't sort of just you know, cafeteria style picking and choosing like, oh, well, this tradition does this and maybe, I'll, you know, so I did, I'm, again, because there's so many folks here in town, I could reach out and pick people's brains, which I definitely did. And, and even beyond Madison to find out like, okay, is everything I'm saying, you know, copacetic to this particular tradition and am I not dipping into other ones? Um, and so for me, at the end of the day, like I said, actual like hardcore research, reading books is not sort of much my style. It's more about talking with people and things like that. When I was actually in Bhutan, I actually was very fortunate to be able to speak with one of the first um, Bhutanese um, monks who actually earned a PhD at Oxford. And, you know, I had a conversation with him, you know, about Buddhism and about reincarnations and things like that. Um, so like I said, those kinds of interactions for me were much more helpful than the idea necessarily of, um, of reading texts, et cetera. And is that how you approach most of your writing? Do you just do you just approach the writing process as something that will uh, 
unfold and express itself as as you're writing and then and then and then you look for areas that you need to tighten up via research um yeah i rarely i really sketch or outline anything before i write it um for example in my first book which is set in vietnam i had ideas for it as i began writing it i came to realize that i actually had to do some research when it came to knowing more about the french rubber plantations that were in um, vietnam um starting in the late 1800s through world war ii and i also realized that i needed to do more um more research about the re-education camps that sprang up in Vietnam after 1975. So that will happen is I'll, I'll write towards something and then I'll realize, oh, I don't know enough about it. I actually need to go out and find more. But I don't begin the process by doing that. I, I hope for our listeners that this sounds encouraging. We're talking to a writer who doesn't outline, doesn't take notes, doesn't weigh heavily on research until until it comes up. It, it sounds like that, that writing is just something that once you begin it, um, it's you're going to find out what you need to what you need mm-hmm. to yeah. do. Yeah. You know, all writers are different because some people really thrive on the research because the research can take them down unexpected lanes that they might not normally have gone down. Um, for me, the research is a little bit of a burden because I find that just personally, the more I know, the more I feel obligated to work it in. And so it's like, oh, I have this cool fact that I want to, you know, I want to get in there. Oh, I, I know this other thing here that people should know. Um, so for me, like I said, it's a bit of a burden, but um, but I recognize its usefulness. Yeah. Uh, we are in conversation right now with Quan Berry on Madison Bookbeat, talking about her most recent novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. Coming back to this question about communicating beyond language and also thinking about you do have a collection of poetry coming out. You, um, you've been writing drama as, as, as well. Um, are there other ways in which you see um, different genres or different mediums kind of allowing you to tap into different modes of, of expression? Mm-hmm. So I have my MFA from the University of Michigan. And while I was there, I primarily studied poetry and that was about it. And then from there, I went to Stanford and I was a fellow there for a few years. And again, there, I only studied um, poetry. And so it wasn't until I came to the University of Wisconsin as a fellow in 1999 and was very fortunate to be in a class of amazing writers. So there were five of us. And uh, I actually was in a group. So one of the other writers was um, a fiction writer named Leslie Tenorio, who teaches now at Johns Hopkins. And another member of the group was um, Anthony Dore, Tony Dore, who wrote All the Light We Cannot See, which won the Pulitzer Prize. And so in that group, it was the three of us. I decided, like, I'm going to learn how to write fiction. Yeah, this is, this is going to be good. Um, and they were very patient with me. And I did. I learned a lot from being in that group with them. And one of the things that I hadn't foreseen that writing fiction um, has allowed for me to do. Eventually, it allowed me to work more on um, plays, as you mentioned. And I recently have begun writing scripts. Again, the writer's strike. I really hope that you know <laughs> wraps up pretty soon, because it's definitely put a serious, uh, thrown a serious wrench in the works. But, um, but being able to write in other genres allowed me to understand that I have different facets in different genres. So for example, in poetry, I I very rarely write a quote unquote funny poem. Like it just, I just don't have that. I'm just not built to write funny poetry. Um, and yet, and I thought, you know, my first book was very serious. Again, it's set in Vietnam. And my second book that was published, uh, We Write Upon Sticks, is a comedy set in the 1980s. It follows a girls' field hockey team as they tr- use witchcraft to try and win the state championship. And it was there that I realized, like, because in life, I'm actually a very funny person. And so people have actually always been surprised that my work up until that point had never tended to be funny. And so it was kind of a surprise to all of us, like, hey, wait, I can write comedy. And I ended up writing that book. And so the same thing has sort of happened in my plays that I've discovered that, oh, I can write comedy in plays. And I think that plays actually for me are sort of the happy point because I think the best plays are both funny, but then also deal with very, very serious issues as well. So they really like you have, you can modulate the tone a lot within a play. Um, and so, again, working in these different mediums has helped me learn how to do that. Uh, in, in writing the plays, like, do you also work with with actors and actresses who who are who are going to be performing these does that in does that inflect the the creative process when i first started writing i didn't a plays i because i didn't know what one does with plays plays are very different from writing fiction or poetry because you do you need stuff you need people you need a theater you need an audience you know you need all these things that you don't need when you're writing poetry or fiction and so when i first started out i didn't have any it's like sometimes i might think about an actor and just an actor that i liked and think like okay i can envision that person in this 
playing this character and I would maybe as I was writing it think about them but I didn't have any real life sort of um, inspirations and then after my first play was staged last spring by Forward Theater here uh, at the Overture Center you know I've, I've now been working with Forward Theater and I've had quite a few um, staged readings which I really love staged readings so staged readings are basically just it's the actors read from a script but it's, again it's after it's after rehearsals and after usually a workshop and you have an audience the thing that I like about staged readings so there's no there's no costumes there's no setting there's no um, there are no props the things I the thing I like about stage readings is that it's just you and your imagination like so you get to imagine like what things look like around them and things like that so I actually in some ways I almost prefer stage readings because again I just find it's just so for me it's just so much richer to imagine a world than to have it given to me but um so since I've been working with forward I have had the opportunity to meet a lot of really great actors many of whom are connected with American Players Theater um and to think of them as I am writing and so I have begun to do that more and more hearing you talk about this and and just the the variety of genres that that you're writing in it brings me back to one of one of the key insights that I that I took away from the book is the the human need for narrative and you know the the quotation that that i read at the beginning says you know, uh our narrator is reflecting on you know why do we need to believe our lives must add up to some grand narrative and what happens when we stop believing this i know you've spoken before about the idea of non-duality in in connection to this could you just talk more to that about this need for narrative and, and your idea of of, of non-duality Mm-hmm. So non-duality is a concept, and many people now, um, you know, in 2023, are thinking of it through the lens of Advaita Vedanta, which is a Hindu philosophy um, that, again, ultimately comes out of the Upanishads and also like the Bhagavad Gita and things like that. Um, but non-duality is something that I think, and many scholars have said, you know, it's present in all religions. So. Um, you know, you see it in Sufism, you see it in mystic Christianity, you see it in, in other animist religions. Um, so it's this idea that there are not two, that everything is one thing. Everything is an emanation of, of the Godhead or of Brahman or whatever you want to call it. So um, it's true that for me, it's something that I I um, am very interested in and I'm, I'm interested in what the implications of it would mean. If this idea, if, if it were true that everything is an emanation of just the one thing, you know, more and more physics is taking us down that road. So physicists and specifically folks who work in quantum mechanics are now knowing more and more about just the strangeness of our universe and the strangeness of time. You know, there are, uh, if you go into Google, you can Google like uh, space time is doomed. And there's actually an astrophysicist at Harvard who talks about how, you know, space and time do not exist, but are all these things which they call entanglements. And again, it gets very tricky when you start thinking about it in those kinds of terms. But um, lastly, I would just say that, you know, the Buddha, his three three of his um, main teachings, which many people are familiar with, but one is the teaching of you know suffering. One is the teaching of impermanence, and then the third that a lot of people don't really focus on so much is this idea of non-self. And so there's many ways when you hear this idea of non-self that we don't necessarily exist the way that we think we do. You know, I think a lot of people hear that and just think of it metaphorically. You know, because I think it's easy for us to understand that. Um, that in many ways our lives are stories that we're constantly constructing. Um, I think that as an idea is easy for people to to wrap their brains around. But again, if you actually begin to go down the quantum mechanics route where you're like, well, actually time and space don't exist the way you, and everything, that gets a little bit trickier. Um, and the universe is a hologram, Yes, right? <laughs> yes. The New York Times had an article about that a few years ago. So like I said, that's a much trickier sort of path to navigate. But I am interested in thinking about, well, what happens if we did stop believing our own stories? You know, there are times, oftentimes, obviously, when our stories are fun, fun to believe in and give us things to look forward to and things like that. But then we also have to recognize that there's a downside to our stories. You know, and for most of us on this planet, our stories at times cause us suffering, you know. Um, And sometimes, you know, when you can step away from an incident or a, a happening that feels particularly heavy, you know, if you can really get some perspective on it, you can begin to realize, like, hmm, you know, is that true? Is that actually if I asked other people, would they say that's true? How much of this is just simply a story or a narrative that I've constructed that I'm holding on to? What would happen if I decided to let go of that? Um, and so, yeah, so that's something that I'm, I'm deeply interested in thinking about. I would love to hear you read a passage from the novel that is, is I think, speaking to this desire of, of narrative, of, of some kind of um, 
meaning making process. Uh, and so th this is a, a passage from the chapter, the first man comes from fire. And I believe it is uh, our narrator who was reflecting on um, seeing a fire ceremony uh, when he was a small child. Through the flames, I hear a heavy drumming. A man steps out from behind the fire, holding a hide stretched over a round frame. The man hits the drum with his bare hand. Over and over, the sound of it like the beating of a heart. The man stands in front of the fire. His headdress of dark feathers is resplendent as any crown, his body robed in blue, scarves and woven ropes, ribbons trailing his form, another secondary face painted on a headband wrapped around his forehead. He moves with such agility, I wonder what animal possesses him. Lightly, he jumps over the edge of the flames. Though the middle is too high to crest, somehow he weaves himself in and out of the fire. I can only see his silhouette, a black figure surrounded by light. The man's face is obscured by a fringe of ropes studded with beads that makes a curtain in front of his face that swings back and forth as he dances. At one point, it appears as if he actually steps into the flames. I gasp. When he steps back out, smoke spires from his headdress. Two men approach and beat at the feathers with their bare fists as the man begins to convulse, his movements not in time with any rhythm on earth. The child sits in his mother's lap on the edge of the flames. He closes his eyes. The shadows dance on his cheeks. I wonder if there are questions each person. I wonder if there are questions each person poses to the flames or if this is a show for us, a demonstration of the power of their faith. The shaman stands up, lurches over the earth, the flames infinite, brushing the stars. When he removes his headdress, I see my mistake. It is the old woman who greets us earlier this afternoon, her body smoking in the night. That is Quan Berry reading from her 2022 novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. Um, this passage, I find it fascinating because I think it brings us back to some of the points that you were talking about communicating beyond language, the need for um, narrative as a kind of ritual, as, as a kind of ceremony. And um, we also kind of see the theatricality of this scene, which I think also speaks to some of the um, other points that you were making about about writing, writing for the theater. Um, something that... I, I, I noticed kind of uh, peppered throughout throughout this novel is ceremonies like these. Uh, there's often uh, music involved. There's often singing, uh, the Mongolian style of singing, overtone singing. And um, were these things that you were witnessing when you, when you were in Mongolia, or are these um, also things that you were kind of co-creating as 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 just a writer? Mm -hmm. I have to admit, some of my happiest nights in Mongolia um, were simply sitting around campfires with local people and just singing. So there was a night when we were camped actually by um, a lake, White Lake, and uh, there was a man who was actually a member of parliament. And so he was, so people, Mongolian people by and large take their camping very seriously. And so they go out, you know, they leave the city, Ulaanbaatar, and they go out into the countryside and they find beautiful spots and they camp. And this lake, you know, attracted a lot of folks. And so there was this man, this member of parliament, and his family, he had like, I don't know, maybe five or six kids, and they were out celebrating his birthday, and they invited us over, you know, to come over and, we're like, you know, after dinner or to eat dinner with them, I can't remember, and we, we went over, and so, you know, you'll, they'll, they will pass around a bottle, a bottle of vodka, and everybody will sing, so everybody will be asked to sing a song, and I was asked to sing, of course, um, our national anthem, because I was like, well, what do you guys want to hear? Like, How about your national anthem? I'm like, uh, <laughs> it's like the worst and hardest song ever, but um, yeah, so some of that is some things that I experienced and participated and then other th are things that I that I know happen. Um, so yeah. Do you have experience as a singer? It's <laughs> <laughs> a long story, but and it does involve uh, again holding on to certain narratives about singing. But it's interesting. So going back to that, because in Mongolia, my um, my experience was that and I don't want to say this is a broad generalization, um, but people could sing because they didn't have the narrative of being self-conscious about it the way that we do in the West, yeah. you know? So I found that like almost everybody could sing because it's just expected that you sing. Um, like I said, as opposed to us in the West who, you know, have all kinds of stories built around that. So, yeah, I can imagine that being quite, uh, of course, mixed with the vodka. I can imagine that being <laughs> qu quite, quite, quite uh, freeing and, and, and yes. liberating at a, yes. at a certain point. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, without giving too much of the novel's conclusion away, I'd like to talk about the scene in the Gobi Desert where our, our troop of monks meet up with some paleontologists at an active excavation site, and they are uncovering um, a creature 70 to 80 million years old. Um, and as I read, I was struck by the novel's interest in, in geological time, or what's often referred to as, as deep time. Can you talk to us about the significance of this scene for the characters and how it elucidates some of the themes and concepts introduced earlier in the novel? Mm -hmm. So that particular scene, um, when the characters go to the Gobi, again, to interview one of the potential candidates to be a llama, it's true that I chose that uh, particular scene based simply on what the narrative needed, because I knew there were going to be three um, candidates. I knew I wanted them to represent vastly different landscapes within Mongolia. Um, and I knew I wanted it to regionally just be, again, this idea of a road trip. And so they had some place to go that's a definite marker. So it's like you have the mountains in the west, you know, you have the steppe in the middle, and you have the desert in in the, the southeast. And so I just knew that, that just narratively that, that I needed that particular structure. And so I didn't think about it deeper as far as, like, okay, well, once he's in the Gobi, you know, what's that going to mean for me metaphorically as far as this larger story is concerned? I do think, though, and that's the beauty of writing. So I think, I, you know, I oftentimes tell my students that supposedly Hemingway, you know, when he was asked if the old man in the sea is a Christian allegory, you know, he said, if, well, if I wrote it well, it will mean many things to many people. And so, um, so similarly here, you know, I didn't necessarily think of the ways in which um, the uncovering of a 70 million year old uh, dinosaur could be a metaphor for the, you know, the uncovering of ourselves or the ways in which sand, sand cleans everything, you know, at high speeds. It's, 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 it's an abrasion, right? It just strips things and, and takes them down to their essences. And so, again, like I said, it, it can be a, meta, um, a metaphor for the larger narrative, but it wasn't necessarily my intention to have it work that way. As as a as a as a road trip novel, as as a quest novel, the two characters that we keep coming back to are these two brothers, Chulin and Mun. Um, these two brothers who are able to communicate telepathically uh, because of the call that they they, they they are born with. And um, I'm wondering if you can just talk more to to the point about what inspired you to write about brotherhood and the lessons about family and faith. One brother who is a devout Buddhist, one who has seemingly kind of renounced his his calling. Um, what what is the novel teaching us about about these connections between brotherhood, family, and faith? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, particularly now in 2023, I mean, many of us in our families have rifts, schisms that are happening in part due to the political climate in this country. I think it's important for us to remember, though, the things that do bind us and, and the ways in which families sort of in certain ways, you know, is always there. Um, I think of it more in terms not necessarily of dualisms, you know, but in terms of spectrums. And mm -hmm. so, for example, um, the idea of the spectrum, you know, heat or hot and cold is really just on a spectrum. You have, if you turn up the, d the thermostat, you have more heat. If you turn it down, you have less and you're cold, right? And so it's, it's all on a linear sort of line. Um, so again, they're not necessarily opposites, but they're just different points along a spectrum. And so in thinking about these two brothers, I see their particular journeys as being similar, like along a spectrum. I think that in the beginning of the story, one of the brothers, you know, has created this narrative in their head, in his head, that they're just truly opposites. And so that they're, because they're opposites and they're, they're, inhabiting different worlds, it means that their two worlds can can just not come back together. But I think towards the end of the book, hopefully, again, without giving any spoiler alerts, we understand that, again, um, it's not about the idea of being on two different worlds, but it's just about this idea of, again, of being along a spectrum. And I think when you think in those kinds of terms, it's often easier to imagine oneself moving in either direction along the spectrum um, towards towards someone. So. And and is, is that process of moving towards, is, is that... <laughs> Is that simply just like time spent together? Is is that you know? Because as as I as I think about this narrative, there's there there's a moment where there's um, you know one brother kind of puts his life on, on the line for, for for the other brother. Is it that um, blood is thicker than water, and that connection will will will, will always be there? Um, and I realize this can vary from 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 case to case, but. Um, what what is it that helps these brothers realize this spectrum rather than these kind of um, these these 
these opposing points. Mm -hmm. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in our conversation. It has to do with the dropping of narrative. So, so often in our own families, you know, we create these narratives like, oh, aunt so-and-so is like this, or, you know, my brother's like that. And so, again, what happens when we drop those particular stories is that we realize that there's not as much distance perhaps as we had thought or as that we had constructed um, in our own minds. Yeah. Um, we are in conversation right now with Quan Berry about their 2022 novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East, uh, published by Vintage. And I am your host on Madison Bookbeat, Andrew Thomas. Um, Quan, you have a new book of poetry coming out, uh, Auction. It uh, will be coming out uh, in a few weeks. And, um, you know, as I as I was reading reading it and I was reading it next to the book, I saw a number of threads that were weaving between the novel and, and, and your forthcoming poetry collection. Um, and so I'd love, can, since we were just talking about fossils, uh, I'd love to get a passage. Um, uh, I'd love to get a poem from, from, from your poetry collection uh, for our listeners to hear. Sounds good. This poem is called Living Fossil, Living God. Admittedly, there is something about its face, the boxy pugilistic snout, the prehistoric eyes that seem to stare down through 80 million years back to the very days of T-Rex. Though taxonomically, the frilled shark is no snake cutting through the lightless waters 5,000 feet down. The creature looks to be the very essence of the reptilian brain, cold-blooded, beyond even the crocodile, that seemingly soulless armory of plates, a creature grounded wholly in the now with no inner life beyond the moment. What would it be to be this presence skirting through the dark with its rows of teeth, a consciousness beyond mind that watches what mind does, its sorrows? A being that grows its young for three and a half years in the dark night of its belly, the longest gestation of any in the animal kingdom, and how it only comes to us from time to time, pulled up in some fisherman's net for all to behold the undying wonders of the sea. To have lived on into the Anthropocene, this creature mostly blind, simply structured, unchanging, feeding on small squids and fishes, others of its kind. Please don't misunderstand. I believe God does not exist in time, but because we do, we cannot understand it. But imagine 80 million years passing second by second. When I look at this silvery beast, I see God. That is Quan Berry reading from her forthcoming poetry collection, Auction, and we just heard Living Fossil, Living God. So we, we're concluding, uh, part of the conclusion of when I'm gone, look for me in the East or in the Gobi desert with paleontologists. Of course, I couldn't help but notice some kind of similarity here. And I was wondering if you could just talk more about how do you see poetry opening up new or different ways of capturing subject matter that say a novel or drama or a screenplay doesn't allow for. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I started writing poems, I really started writing them because I was just interested to see what was on my own mind. Um, you know, coming of age in the 1990s, uh, we're living in a much different time now, happily, than we were in the early 90s. Honestly, in the early 90s, there weren't nearly as many um, writers of color, you know, poets of color. Um, I was fortunate to work with one at the University of Virginia, Rita Dove, who's a former poet laureate. But like I said, there just weren't that many. And so in thinking about my own background as a person who's multi-ethnic, transracially adopted, I was just kind of curious to see what kind of work will somebody like me actually produce. And so that's one of the reasons why I first started writing poetry. And then once I did that, and I began to write fiction and other kinds of things, I realized that for me, poetry is the medium in which I I explore que questions, questions I'm not an necessarily interested in answering in certain kinds of ways. I'm also really interested in poetry and just thinking about an image and really bearing down on that image. So for example, uh, that poem that I just read some years ago on uh, CNN, they, they mentioned that a fisherman somewhere had caught this prehistoric fish you know, that hadn't been seen in a long time. And I just saw pictures of it and I just remember watching the footage of this particular fish and being really super interested in it. So it's just kind of, in it's instinctual. Like I know there's, for me, there's no novel here about this fish. Like I can't come up with that. I mean, maybe you could, you could think about the fisherman who caught it and you know, maybe it went viral or whatever, but I just, I just knew that there's no, there's no novel or story there about it, but, but there is a poem, you know? And so for me, usually, like I said, poetry is about questions. Um, 
novels are much more about again stories and like stories that need to have legs and that you know can be many multifaceted and then finally for me plays and this is just for me personally are much more about compressed periods of time plays and short stories I find actually have a lot in common that's not to say that you can't have a poem I'm sorry um, a play or a short story that takes place over a, a longer period of time but for me the kind of tensions I'm interested in occur when we see a character in in live time you know um, dealing with something were there any tensions with editors after you had written some poetry collections moving into the fiction genre? Were, were there moments where uh, you had to convince editors, you know, that that you were also a novelist? What 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 was that process like moving yeah, moving between no. genres? <laughs> it's very easy. It's very easy because my edit, I have their different presses, so that's easy. Okay. I'm saying yeah. there's anything that was hard, and again, and I mentioned earlier about the writer's strike. Um, it's true that um, the rights for my field hockey book, uh, we write upon sticks. Originally, those rights were sold to NBC, and at that time, I did not have a playwriting credit under my belt. And so, even though I was interested in writing this, the the uh, TV pilot for it, because I couldn't show them a script that I'd ever written they were like yeah no nice try um, and so the but the rights to NBC their rights ran out about uh, in October so they had the rights for about two and a half years and the rights have come back to me and so now I'm working with a producer and I have been able to write the the TV pilot for it but part of that was that I had to have it helps to have a, a play credit under your belt than when you go to people in the TV industry and say that you want to write a script without that they're a little bit um, more hesitant to assign uh, somebody on you know, given that that it is Labor Day today, and that you are a a, a writer by by trade, and, and 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 that's your profession, I'm just curious what what are your thoughts on on on, on the writer strike right now? Gosh, it's uh, I think it's so important. Um, unions and I just saw somewhere I didn't I didn't click on it, but that that maybe in this country union um, folks joining unions is is a bit on the uptick. I think I saw a recent headline that said that, and I hope that's true. Um, I think. You know, the importance of the writers and also the actors, you know, coming out of this um, and showing the strength of solidarity and of people standing together, I think will be really important and send a really important message to other unions across the country to show that, yes, if you can do this, and like I said, and um, be cohesive about it, that you can have results. I think, too, I think if you explain to most people what it is that the writers and the actors are asking for, it seems very reasonable. You know, most writers are not Aaron Sorkin. You know, they're not making a zillion dollars, you know, doing this thing that they love. Um, I think people understand that streaming, the streaming services, has really upended what they're what just how we take content in and then unfortunately you know the rules the past rules did not reflect the new reality for how uh content is is disseminated right and so i think like i said most people would really if they really knew the specifics of what the writers are asking for would, would very much side with them a, a lot of the mfa students that you that you teach and and and, and that you work with um as they move through the program, are they, do you find them, are they finding jobs and are, are they finding professional writing jobs or is it primarily th through affiliations with, with, with other creative writing departments at, at universities? Um, I guess the question is, do, do you, do you find students that you work with, do you find them finding, um, productive, well-paying jobs? Mm outside of a outside of a university mm -hmm. context mm -hmm. yes yeah, so I'm always telling my undergrads when my undergraduates are thinking of applying to an MFA that the MFA is not quote-unquote a professional degree right it's not like if you get a law degree you're a lawyer if you go to med school you're a doctor you get an MFA yes you're a poet but that doesn't necessarily mean that you will um, be hired as a poet so the analogy I often use actually does go back to acting you know that there are certain actors for example Brad Pitt Brad Pitt does not have an MFA um, but then there are other actors like Rain Wilson who was Dwight Schrute in the office and who used to kind of maybe live a little bit here in Madison, you know, who does have an MFA. Um, and so, again, the MFA is really about training, you know, training you in your art. And so most of our MFAs, the thing that we really put a lot of stress on is, um, or emphasis on, is the idea of publishing. Like, that's what they're interested in at the end of the day. It's not so much about getting jobs necessarily, although being able to write, you know, makes you much more um, employable on many levels. But again, at the end of the day, the thing that our students are very much interested in is the idea of publishing. And on that note, you know, they've done really, really well.
What lessons uh, can other writers, both students of yours and, j- and just our listeners, what lessons can they learn from exploring other mediums and modes of, of both writing and then just creative expression more mm-hmm. more generally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm always trying to encourage my students, again, to write in other genres and also to, as you've mentioned, you know, other art forms. So, you know, painting or music or dance or photography or what have you, just the more you feed your artistic muscle, even if, you know, you think of yourself as having many muscles, just the stronger the whole set of muscles will get you know as we talked about earlier for me um you know realizing as i began to branch out from poetry that i had other ways of expressing myself again through other tones be they comedic or what have you and so i'm often talking with my students and i kind of use myself as an example like i didn't really know that i had this funny side to me it wasn't until i actually did it that i realized that it was there and so oftentimes um, it can take the stress off your primary genre too when you have a Mm -hmm. secondary genre that you're working in Um, and so it's something that I i highly encourage them to think about so speaking of the comedic note, you say that you don't write funny poetry. I think I may have identified one <laughs> one funny poem, uh, okay. and and I think we deserve to um, we we all deserve to 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 hear that. Um, so uh, if you wouldn't mind reading one more poem for us, this is Quanberry reading from their forthcoming collection of poetry called Auction Out Everywhere, September twenty sixth. I feel like I have to take down the um, the expectations. So it's not as you're not going to guffaw here, but uh, I guess uh, humor is one of those things. It's, it's in the eye of the beholder. I smiled. I smiled. <laughs> here I go. So this poem is called By the Shore of Lake Monona, This is What I Heard. May all achieve equilibrium. May all have access to the tools to acquire equilibrium. Like the story of his first day in town, the young monk walking by an ATM, which emits a small sound as he passes. The sound as if the machine is greeting him, saying, welcome, stranger, the first in that foreign place to do so. In turn, the monk bows to the machine, silently sending Meta its way, loving kindness, that it may know peace and be serene in the world. And so it goes. Each time the monk passes, he wishes the small contraption ease. Then one day, while making his rounds, he hears a beep, looks to see a bill suddenly hanging from the machine's steel lips. We must not lose sight of the oneness in all things. Persevere. The monk bows deeply. That is Quanberry reading from her forthcoming collection of poetry, Auction. Um, Quan, in the final moments that we have here, um, you are, you are, you are a prolific creator, so I imagine something something is either cooking right now or or on the back burner. But could you give us a, a taste of of what of, of of what's coming yeah coming down the pipe? So I'm hopefully in the in the process of finishing uh, a draft of a novel that's set in Antarctica. I'm somebody who likes to work in a lot of different genres, even within fiction. And so this Antarctica book that I'm working on, I think of it as a horror book. Basically, a black tourist goes to Antarctica. Um, she's a movie location scout, so she's looking for movie locations. An accident happens during a kayaking outing, and she and a handful of other kayakers get stranded on a remote island in Antarctica. So that's what I'm working on now. That sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. I cannot I cannot wait to read that. Mm-hmm. Um, today we have been in conversation with Quan Berry about her novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East, published in 2022 by Vintage. Be on the lookout for her new collection of poetry, Auction, on sale September 26th through the University of Pittsburgh Press. Quan, it's been such a pleasure having you on Madison Book Beat. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. 